What a sea of faces. Wow. Look at what the Lord has done. Look at what he's done. In life after life after life, when he pursued the cross and he went through it for the joy set before him, he envisaged you. He saw you. He saw millions filling rooms from adobe mud huts or under trees to skyscrapers to massive cathedrals to all sorts of contexts, front rooms, bedrooms, hearts turning to him, knowing him and receiving him, receiving his salvation, understanding who he is and therefore having eternity opened up. That which was lost being recovered. That which was broken being restored. That which was hopeless having hope. That was which without purpose. Beyond the secular narrative of genes reproducing. Into ultimate purpose. Plans before the creation of the world. For you to fulfill His design in you, the perfect poem expressed in you that he foresaw, that you might express it now and for eternity for his joy. It's what took him to the cross. It's what he's passionate about. I love that song, He is Worthy. It messes me up every single time. I couldn't sing it this morning. I just couldn't sing it. I couldn't get the words out without looking a mess. But it is the core of the scriptures. It is the core of everything. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, that in the Gospels, the writers of the Gospels say, can somebody just pull the blind? Emma's slap bang with the sun on her and that would be awesome. Thank you. The Gospels are all about Jesus and his narrative about who he is. And so he's all about the kingdom come. And he says the kingdom is in your midst. It's present, it's close, it's intimate. Why? Because he's standing there. He's right there. He's accessible, he's touchable. And then we get this shift as we move into the letters and the Acts of the Apostles and we start to understand that it's no longer all about the kingdom coming, it's about the king. It's about the one who has done it. So we get this equation that balances out where Jesus says, the kingdom come, it's coming, it's coming. And then Paul and the apostles and the writers of the epistles all start saying, it's in Christ that you are set free. And so we see this shift, this transition of language from the kingdom to the king and he's elevated above everything else. He is glorious. He is king of all. There is an assumption, there is a presumption that the Christian faith is a faith that is blind Because Jesus said, blessed are those who haven't seen me and yet believe. 
And so the argument comes that therefore we must base our belief on something that lacks evidence. But I want to show to you this morning that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolute evidence. And therefore we stand on evidence, we stand on reason, we stand on rationality as to why we believe what we believe and in whom we believe. Not because we have blind faith that believes something in the absence of evidence, but because the evidence is there and it is plain. I believe also that the Holy Spirit is at work in the church to remove unbelief and give birth to belief. For too long our heads have been down, our eyes have been to the ground. Our disposition has been to not believe, to not hope, to not seek hold of and take hold of. But I believe the Lord is lifting our heads. He's saying, will you look at me? Will you make me the center point of all things? Look on me and believe. Jesus says to the disciples who are struggling to understand, he says, if you don't believe the words I say, believe at least for the signs that I work. And so they're, they're allowed to believe upon the signs. They're allowed to believe on the action of the Holy Spirit. They're allowed to believe on those things as evidence of who he is. And we, the church, are allowed to believe upon those things as evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in the earth, proclaiming the will and the mandate of the Father through the Holy Spirit into creation. We're allowed to believe upon those things. And so when Paul writes to the churches and he encourages us to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, the higher gifts, we're encouraged. Why? Because it's the evidence in the now of the eternal. And so we get to explore what the kingdom of God is today. And so our faith is not blind, but it is seeing. Because as Paul writes, he says, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light of the Son whom the Father loves. The light's on, and therefore we should be able to see clearly. I want to talk about the core of the gospel this morning. Deity, death, resurrection. You can simplify it down into those three words. That's what the apostles were about. That's what the church was founded upon. It is the essence of everything that we are about. The deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. That he died, yes, absolutely. And he was raised again, absolutely. It's these fundamental three elements that stand as our foundational principle of why we believe what we believe. And who he is. Jesus Christ is God. When we turn to John's gospel and we explore what it is that he says from the very beginning about Jesus, whom he encountered, what does he say? He points to Jesus and he says, He is the Word. 
the word that was with God from the very beginning. He is the creative breath of God. All things were made through him. And nothing that he's made was made without him. John gets it, and he gets it right in at the beginning of his good news to everybody. And this isn't a concept that is easy to get hold of within the Old Testament. It's not easy. It's not a simple continuation down the line. But John has got it. He's got this revelation from the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ was there eternally. He was there at the beginning. All things were made through him. And the writer of Hebrews goes on and says exactly the same thing and mirrors it. In the beginning was God. When we look into Genesis 1 and we look into that Hebrew word, Elohim, we find that it's a plural word. It's not a singular noun. It's a plural noun. And when God says, let us create man and woman in our image, he's talking in the plural. Let us create in our image, not let me create in my image. It's there from the very beginning of the testament of God given to Moses. And when Jesus is resurrected and he spends 40 days teaching the disciples all about who he is from the Old Testament and all the way through, they get their eyes open. They get to realize and understand this is who he is, the eternal one. This is who he is, the risen, glorified Messiah who was before all things and will be beyond all things. And so in Revelation we have, I am the Alpha and the Omega, that Jesus says of himself. I'm the beginning and the end. Everything is incorporated into him. He is much bigger than we imagine. The principal reason that the Jews wanted to see Jesus crucified was blasphemy. And blasphemy that led to a risk of their management and control of Israel. And they feared that that would lead to sedition against Rome and therefore Rome would come and they would be crushed. Jesus says in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. You can't get clearer than that. He's not dividing himself out and saying, no, the Father is God and I'm not. He's making it clear he's there, incorporated into the Godhead. He is God. And so they pick up stones to stone him. Isaiah 6, 8. There's so many places that you can find in the Old Testament where God speaks of himself in the plural. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? It just goes on and on and you just start to see Jesus appearing again and again in the Old Testament. And there's too much to explore this morning. But I encourage you, get into it, find it, Google search it. If you're not sure about the webpage, let us know and we'll tell you whether it's a bit wacky or not. But it's there. And so Jesus opens up. On the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Jesus opens up from Moses and the prophets 
to the disciples walking along the road. He opens up and he opens up their eyes so they can see who he is. And they get this revelation. My word, it's you. You're the one. As he breaks bread and then he vanishes before them. There are these multiple points where Jesus is showing and explaining to people it's all about him. It's all about him. There isn't anything else. Absolutely cool. I don't know if you find it weird when you read through the New Testament and you have Jesus using this phrase, son of man. And he talks about himself in the third person. He goes, son of man and son of man. And it's from Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And this is the vision that Daniel receives by the Holy Spirit. He says this, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honour and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. So the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. We see him present in the Old Testament. And we see Jesus using this phrase, the Son of Man, as a mask. Because he will not ascend the throne by any route other than the cross. So often we see Jesus interact with people. He heals over here. And he says, don't go telling anybody. Don't tell them. Don't tell them what I've done for you. And he does something else. He goes, no, don't tell them. Why? Because the people wanted to make him king. The people wanted a saviour. They wanted a king now. And they wanted a king who would rule and reign in the way they imagined he would rule and reign, as a king on the earth. They also wanted bread. Life was hard. So when Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish, they're like, this, this guy, we want him. We want him king. Imagine that. An endless supply of food. What a wonderful thing. We'll have it. We'll have it now. What does Jesus do? Saying, knowing what was in their hearts, that they would come and make him king by force, he left that place. He uses these frames of reference to himself like the son of man. He tells people to stay quiet and he moves on to another town because he wants the gospel of the kingdom of God to be preached. He said, that's why I've come, to be obedient to my father, to let people know that the ultimate reality is not what you see, not what you touch, not what you feel, not what you taste, not what you smell, but the ultimate reality is the invisible that made the visible. That's the ultimate reality. And so my life is full of signs. I'm pointing you to that which you cannot see so that your eyes may be opened and you will have revelation, not just where you're at in the darkness, but who I am and what I'm going to do for you. He wants people to know this isn't it. And boy, do people need to know this isn't it. 
he would not ascend that throne apart from obedience to the Father. He just wouldn't go there. And so we recognize him as God, who he is, foretold in the scriptures, expressed by his own words. And then we come to his death. There's been all sorts of theories, haven't there, over the years, all sorts of weird and wonderful books. I heard of one the other week that was written in the 1970s, which was Jesus and the Magic Mushroom Cult. And how they all tripped and had hallucinations and it was all amazing, man. And actually what they'd done is they discovered these Middle Eastern mushrooms and they had these amazing hallucinogenic effects. And so people thought stuff had happened. Amazing. I think if you look at the Gospels and you look at a critique of the Gospels, you will find any and every single attempt to reduce them down to nothing. What's interesting as you explore these things, if you look at characters like Professor Dr. Uh, Gary Habermas and others who study the New Testament in its original languages, have studied it throughout their whole careers, have studied all the texts that are available as copies of the New Testament, that actually there's been a massive shift in the world of academia. The school now, the school of thought now is that the people that wrote it believed absolutely what they wrote. And they wrote it exceedingly close in terms of time to when it happened. And we'll look at that a bit more in a moment. I'd like to read through Isaiah 53, if that's okay. Because it just contains so much. This is in the book of Isaiah, one of the prophets that God sent to Israel. And it's written 700 years before the events of Easter weekend. Now, if you've got good eyesight, you'll be able to read this. Let's give it a go. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed this powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a rooting dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. I speak so much not only of the actual ministry time of Jesus, but also the events of Easter weekend. Yet, it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. Let's just hold on that moment. It was our sorrows which weighed him down. As we contemplate the cross, as we contemplate the human condition, and we contemplate the work of Jesus Christ going through death into resurrection, 
we get a glimpse of his compassion. That he looks on us as people who are lost, sheep without a shepherd. Attacked by wolves, frightened, troubled, anxious and afraid. And he looks into that and it weighs his heart. Because the heart of God was for always for humanity to have him front and centre. To know him, to know his presence, to know his filling of us. But instead, as he says, to each has gone their own way. And we're lost. And we have no defence against the enemy. Our own minds, our inability to manage the knowledge of good and evil and yet do no harm. We can't do that. How we affect one another. The effect of world systems on each other. And the effect in the spiritual realm of an enemy who wishes to keep us under. This weighed him down. And yet we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced through his hands and his feet for our rebellion. And he was crushed for our sins. There is a sense when Christ cried out from the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? That it was in that moment that the crushing weight of sin collapsed in on him. And the burden was placed on him in the same way the priest would place their hands on the scapegoat, a goat that was positioned and he prayed all the sins of Israel on it and then sent it out into the wilderness to die. In that same moment, Christ carries our sins and our burden. He was beaten that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. We'll come back to that as we look at communion. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. That's recorded in the Gospels, isn't it? That he stands before Pilate. He stands before the rulers of the day. They say, are you the king of the Jews? And they berate him, they go at him. And all he says is, it is as you say. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before the shearers, he didn't open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. This is God speaking. He'd done no wrong. He'd never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal and he was put in a rich man's grave. And we know from the Gospels about how Jesus was buried. Joseph of Arimathea, he was placed in his tomb, freshly cut, never used before. 
There's a very interesting documentary on um, Nat Geo, by the way, if you're interested in looking at it as to the site of the tomb and what happened. It's really interesting. Ask me about it if you're interested. I'll go on. I will give him the honours of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels and he bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. That's where we were. Rebellious against God. And yet God comes in to the camp and he stands in our place and he takes hold of it all our rebellion, all our rejection of God, all our sorrows, everything that oppresses us, and he takes that on himself. And in his death, he rules victorious. The principalities and the powers are subdued. Have you ever watched Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis? the famous atheist of Oxford who grew up and understood nothing of God and didn't want to know anything of him. He thought he was ridiculous and mere myth. And then has his life turned around as he pursues and inquires. This is somebody of the highest intellectual capability who inquires, who looks into a thing and says, I will not just pass it by. I'll look into it. I'll seek. And guess what? The words of Jesus came true. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be opened unto you. And he sought and he found Christ was true. It's who he is. Is that believable? A three-year-old. We live in a day of Photoshop, don't we? Is that believable? Maybe he was at Centre Parks and a little cut and paste from the children's swing. It's actually believable. This is Jackson Holding, three, climbing Piz Badil. I'll probably pronounce that wrong, in the Alps in Switzerland. Now, if you're a parent, your hands have probably gone sweaty. <laughs> and you might be thinking, oh, my days, you've got to be kidding me, right? There's no way I'd take my three-year-old to a large climbing frame, let alone climbing up a mountain. But just look at his face. He's just got a huge smile on his face. His dad, both his parents are amazing climbers. But when we look at that picture that's presented, we can go, nah, it's all right. But when we get into it and we do a bit of research and we find out more, we go, oh, my days, it's, it's real. And there's actually people who will attest to it. And they'll say, this is what happened. And they give testimony to it. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is exactly the same. That the testament we have to the resurrection of Jesus is historically watertight.
Let's have a look at a few things as we walk through the resurrection of Jesus. When we go through the Gospels, what we find interestingly is that his brothers don't believe in him. They just don't believe in him. And you'll find that in John 7, Mark 3, etc., where they're like, look, if you really say who you are, go up to Judea, go, go up to Jerusalem, go up and show yourself. And at other times, they're like banging on the door of the house because Jesus is teaching. They're like, Jesus, your brother and your mother and your sisters are outside looking for you because they think he's lost his mind. It's like, you, you've just gone a bit too far, Jesus. Calm down. You just need to, let's have a conversation. They didn't believe in him. It's interestingly, the psalmist, Psalm 69.8, says that they become a stranger to his own brothers, an alien to his mother's children. A prophecy in the Psalms of that journey as Jesus walks into his ministry and what it looks like. And so you've got James there and you've got Jude there. Two people who will become pillars in the church, who are half-brothers of Jesus, going, we don't believe you. William Lane Craig says this, the disciples would have been completely un-Jewish to adopt a language of the resurrection. Completely. It just wasn't in their frame of view. It's not within their their religious compass. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is not something they would have invented. It's not a natural outcome of their journey in Judaism. Nothing like it at all. N.T. Wright says the same. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have generated any such idea that Christ would have been raised from the dead. Nobody would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. This was a complete shock. A complete shock, even though Jesus had alluded to it. The sign of Jonah, I'll be buried, I'll be raised on the third day. If you destroy this temple, I'll raise it again three days later. He alludes to it again and again and again, but they don't get it. And when we read those end of gospel narratives, they don't believe it. The women, Mary, Martha, the first ones to receive the information that Christ is risen from the dead, run back to the disciples. And what do they do? <laughs> well, they do. They, they run themselves. Peter and John run to the tomb to inquire of themselves. No, we can't believe what you're saying. It's not what they were expecting. But the reality is, from the very beginning of all the letters that are written, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts, of the birth of the church, the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus is front and central. It is the thing that the church is built upon. It's the thing that Paul preaches in 1 Corinthians 15, that he says, of the first things that I received, I have preached. 
And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about all the people Jesus met after he'd raised from the dead. 500 here. Then he met James. Then he met Peter. Then he met with the disciples. And he just lists them. And then he puts himself last and he goes, and last of all, me as one who was unnaturally born because I persecuted the church. And so here's Paul, who's like multiple PhD level intellect, right? Because anybody who studied Paul understands the degree of his intelligence and his ability. He's a, a brilliant ethicist. He's a brilliant writer. And he's able to piece things together excellently. And the reality is this man who studied under Gamaliel, who, who pursued truth, who saw the church growing following this Jesus who'd been crucified, went out after it and attacked the church again and again and again, dragging them out. This cannot happen. This is blasphemy. This isn't how it is. And he's against the church. He's like Osama bin Laden. Going after the church, pursuing his aim, and then finding the risen Christ standing before him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so in 1 Corinthians 15, he puts himself last on the list of the apostles, last on the list of those to whom Jesus had appeared. But he's absolutely core. Because he goes on and correlates in 1 Corinthians 15 all those appearances of the risen Christ to the argument that if Christ isn't raised, we might as well forget it. We'll be the most piteous of all people. Forget it. Go home. Laugh at us. Give up. But then he says, no, for indeed Christ has been raised. He is alive and therefore there is resurrection life. Therefore, everything has changed. And this is core. This is early. Some people put it around 33 AD, three years after the death and resurrection of Jesus is being written to the churches. Those 500 Jesus appeared to, the apostles, everybody else is still alive. This isn't like 300 years later, 400 years later, let's imagine something. This is right now in the moment. We also have James, who anecdotally was not there at the foot of the cross. Because Jesus says to John, John, here's your mother. Mary, here's your son. And it was from then that John took her into his house. James wasn't there. We don't know where James was, but he didn't believe it. The half-brother of Jesus. But what do we find in Acts? There James is in the upper room. What do we find later on? There, James is leading the church in Jerusalem. What do we find later on? James is writing one of the epistles to the churches. How can you grow up being somebody's brother and then turning around and believing that they are God? You've got to know them pretty well, right? He completely changes what he believes because Jesus appeared to him. And so we have these exceedingly early resurrection testimonies of Jesus Christ. Within months of the resurrection, starting to form the core of the church. And so that is what we preach today. The deity 
death and resurrection of Jesus. He is core. He is central. He is alive. Changes everything. Changes everything. As you look at the buildings outside, as you look at the fabric of the carpet, as you look at the person next to you, it changes everything. For we are no longer the same because if the dead are raised, everything changes. Everything changes. Just take a moment. Everything has changed. From the resurrection day, everything has changed. And Jesus says to them, don't go do anything yet, but go into Jerusalem, and when you're in Jerusalem, wait, because I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit, and then you're going to preach to the ends of the earth. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to come We've got some bread and we've got some wine. And I'd like you to come and get some and just stand around in groups. Don't feel like you have to go back to your seats or anything like that. Just grab some, grab somebody you're with. And I want you just to process as you take the bread and wine that this is the resurrected Christ. His covenant with you, his promise in his blood and through his body that has changed all of earth's history. This is the eternal one sacrificed for you, that you might live and have eternal life. And as you do that, I'd like you to lay hands on one another, and I'd like you to pray for the Holy Spirit to come and fill you afresh and you. Would you do that? Yeah? I invite you up now. Come, we've got two points here. Have we got some points at the back? One over there by Manny. Yeah. So, have some bread and wine.